0: The First Thessalonians as we open up the Word of God together today, and to chapter 2, second chapter please. Thank you to Dr. Overlay and the choir for ministering, certainly to my own heart, and also to the congregation for singing that last hymn so well. I don't think I've ever heard it sung so well, um, so um, I was even more encouraged by that. Sing to the Lord with all of our might sing as those that are truly set free. If you can imagine yourself on the other side of the Red Sea, how you'd be singing with all those that have been delivered. Um, That's the kind of attitude we should be. We are on the other side of the Red Sea. Our sins are forgiven. We've been delivered from Egypt and we're never going back there again. The Lord covers up that sea and covers up our path from going back into that place and we're delivered, and therefore our song should be one that is full of joy and might and praise. And may the Lord ever help us whenever we are have the temptation to be forlorn, to remember the pit from whence we've been digged and to rejoice in what the Lord has done for us. We're in First Thessalonians chapter two, and we're going to read from verse one. And read through the opening 12 verses together. Let's follow in the Word of God, precious Word of God. Let's hear it with profit, by the help of the Spirit. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before, and were shamefully entreated, as ye know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God's witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As ye know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you into His kingdom and glory. Amen. And Again, we've had this tremendous privilege of hearing the living Word of God. Let us pray. Seek the Lord, beloved. Our Father, we come before Thee thankful again for all that has already encouraged our hearts. Deliver us from that wandering. Take our hearts and grant that we might ever be sealed in to praise Thee as voices of testimony of Thy marvelous grace. Bless us here in the Word. We know we all need the power of Thy Spirit. May we have His ministry amongst us very evidently. Fill me with the Holy Ghost. May the Spirit of God come down upon every hearer. May Christ be magnified and the church strengthened and the kingdom advanced. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How important are leaders? If you walk into the average bookstore today, you will see all the evidence you need that leaders are in high demand. There are shelves that constantly are trying to show new tips or various ways to be a leader or a better leader. Leadership is in high demand. And the qualities of leadership are very important in our day. And they always have been. As we come to this chapter and progress in our study in this letter, we will not only learn of Christian virtues, but especially in the opening 12 verses, we will see certain virtues that are necessary for the leader, for the Christian leader in the work of God. As the Apostle Paul continues to deal with a theme that he touched on earlier, if you go back to verse 5, he says there, as ye know at the end, as ye know what manner of men we wear among you for your sake, he picks up that theme again. He starts to talk about the manner of men that they were among those that were in this particular city. The kind of leaders that they were. He and his companions, Silas and Timothy. And he develops the thought, and we're going to see it here as we progress through these verses, especially when we get to verse 3, where he begins to take on a certain kind of argumentation, we might say, concerning the kind of men that they were. Leadership, therefore, is something that is very, very important and very helpful. Most men are called to lead in some capacity, called to lead their wives and their children, are called to lead in places of employment, as employers, as those who are supervisors of others, or even in the church of God at large that we are called to be leaders. Women, too, have a certain leadership quality, certainly in the home with children and even beyond, but particularly men. There is this need to know what God requires of Christian leaders. And as it was in the days when Paul was living, I think, and as the day we're living, there's always a lack, a lack of the number of leaders and a lack even in the depth and quality of leaders. And certainly I feel it and know it in my own heart. And yet, the Word of God gives us much instruction. Leadership is not for the faint of heart. It takes courage and wisdom and gentleness and many qualities that are, well, just not as common as you might desire. And perhaps sometimes qualities that we don't even see as qualities, even when we get on later and we see the kind of the gentle. You can see verse 7, we were gentle among you. That's perhaps not always seen as a quality of leadership. But it is and certainly was in the ministry of the apostle and his companions. A vital aspect of the work of God is leadership. There's no getting around it. There's no avoiding it. In fact, if you uh, turn to Titus very quickly, just flip over forward a little bit in your Bible and you come to the pastoral epistle of Titus after Second Timothy, you'll see Paul in a certain way, showing the importance of leadership within the church. In verse 5, Titus chapter 1, verse 5, he writes to Titus saying, after he's gone through the the preface of an introduction and so on, as he normally would in his letters, he says in verse 5, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. And then he goes through the characteristics and the certain aspects that need to be looked for in any leader. If any be blameless, a husband of one wife and so on. But if you stand back and you see what Paul is doing here as he writes to, to Titus, he is saying first and foremost, there were things that, that are necessary in the church and I left you in Crete to do that. And if you observe carefully what is being said, essentially Paul is saying to Titus, Titus, I left you in Crete to do a job and you haven't done it. You still haven't done it. If you you read it carefully at the end, as I had appointed thee, I left you in Crete to set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. Therefore, the motive of Paul in writing to Titus is basically to say, Titus, why haven't you done what I told you to do? Which gives us at least some instruction. First, That even good leaders, those that were leaders and had been mentored by the Apostle Paul, find certain aspects of leadership difficult to execute. Titus was not able to execute what Paul had advised him to do, at least not as quickly as Paul wanted him to do it. And so he is is writing really in a a certain sense to to exhort him to do something he had failed to do. There's a little subtle chastening in the language. I told you, I left you there. I appointed you to do this, and you haven't done it yet. And the things that he had called him to do well—to set in order the things that are wanting, to help structure the church, things that were left undone—and ordain elders. That is absolutely crucial, Titus, that you ordain elders. The church needs leaders. It cannot function without. Leaders, it must have leaders, elders, bishops, pastors, those God has set apart within a local congregation to help the rest of the flock in their progress in faith. You have to do this. For Paul, this was almost priority number one. As far as the church functioning, it was absolutely essential that each church had its spiritual leaders. And when you follow even in the book of Acts, you will see this. As he goes through his first missionary journey and he makes his way back, tracing back the places that they had visited, he goes there to ordain elders to see who's spiritually progressing and can be entrusted with the need to care for the flock of God. It was absolutely crucial for the survival and the growth of the work. Churches cannot function biblically Properly in the way God has appointed, except there be elders in place. That is not to say that every man who will become an elder is perfect. He is not. You can see Titus. Titus wasn't perfect. He he was he, he hadn't done what he was asked to do. And like any leader, sometimes we fail to do what we are meant to do. But there are qualities and there are certain characteristics that are that God requires. And when you see them you bring those individuals, you appoint those individuals, you encourage those individuals in taking that step to say, I will help in the work of God here. It's no light matter. It's not for the faint of heart. And yet, no one has any real burden for the work of God if they do not first see the need of this and then pray for those that God has appointed to this work. To not desire the spiritual profit of elders, is to not desire the spiritual profit of your own soul. God has given them. It's like basically saying, (laughs) it's like a child wishing for the, the downfall of their own father while they're under their care. It's going to directly impact the child. The child should desire the prosperity of his father. Should long for his growth, his advancement. Often as children, they don't really have the capacity to see how vital that is, certainly in the early years. But you can see it as an adult looking back that any child who, who bites the hand that feeds it is not helping itself. And so it is in the church. If there's to be a desire for my own profit, then I have to see the profit and prosperity in those that God has seen fit to put over my soul. Leadership, then, is utterly essential. And as I say, this chapter is going to be really helpful for us as we pay attention in seeing those kind of characteristics that are necessary. And as we begin to look at this chapter in the weeks that will follow as well, I just want to say from the outset, there are two ways of looking, especially from verse 3 down to verse 12, two ways of looking at what Paul is doing here. On the one hand, some see Paul as giving a self-description of, in light of the philosophical hucksters of the day. So he's saying, our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor unguiled. So when he's saying, we're not like those philosophers that come through your city and try to basically deceive you. We're we're not like them. So in that way, it would be a self-description of themselves. But the other way of understanding Paul's language here is not a self-description, but a self-defense against personal attacks that were coming against him trying to discredit his ministry. So he's either distinguishing himself from others or defending himself against others. And I'm not dogmatic. It seems to me from my gleanings in preparation this week is that the latter seems to be the strongest opinion, that Paul really is getting feedback that there's a little bit of influence either from outside the church amongst the Jews, or even perhaps internally in the church, voices rising up beginning to question the character of the Apostle Paul and his companions that came through Thessalonica to bring the Gospel. And so, whatever the case, whether he's giving a self-description or a self-defense, it's really instructive. Really instructive to see what Paul says what their manner was, what their character was, as they came in before this city and before this people. You see, the devil knows, and certainly if this is the latter, if it's a matter there's been attack against Paul and his character, the devil knows that if you discredit the character of the preacher, then you can suck the power out of his ministry. Because all that he said and all that he sought to do then you come and you undermine the character and people just say, well, well, it was all with the wrong motive. And people begin to feed off this desire that there's a wrong motive, there's an underlying pretense there, and because of that, whatever he said can just be discredited, can just be forgotten about. So Paul, if that is indeed his motive, to give a self-defense, is writing in such a fashion so as to preserve the gospel that had been received. Because all that he had taught, all that he had sought to present before the people, if they just say, well, he was a bad character, a bad apple, then all the message he sought to present just falls away. There's no foundation. Isn't it amazing how, as we live in this world, there's a certain sense, and I, I say this advisedly and carefully, that truth, the truth is on a foundation of the character that presents it. That if you've already discredited the person, it doesn't really matter what they say. It happens in court all the time. It doesn't matter that he's a witness. <laughs> we know other things in the past that would discredit the, the testimony of this individual. This morning, we're going to confine our thoughts to the opening two verses here, where we're going to draw from this first aspect of leadership that you see in the apostle and his companions, and that, of, that characteristic of boldness. And so I've just kind of titled it this way, characteristics of Christian leadership, colon, boldness, because we're going to see some other characteristics that will come forth. And it's really under this, this umbrella of characteristics of Christian leadership. And the first one, simply this morning, is boldness. And we're pulling it all around the language that we find in verse 2 when he says, but even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully treated." As ye know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. As we consider these characteristics, first note with me that bold leaders seize opportunities. Bold leaders seize opportunities. Now, before we get into looking at the text, we need to answer the question, what do we mean by the term boldness? What do we mean when we use the term boldness? What did Paul mean when he said we were bold? In our God. What's he talking about? Well, first, it's not a personality trait. It's not what he's dealing with. A quiet, introverted person can be bold. And an outspoken extroverted person can shrivel up at a key moment. So it's not a personal characteristic, it's not a trait of personality. But here's how I defined it: boldness is a work of the Spirit of God that propels the Christian to witness for Christ at important junctures of opportunity. Boldness is a work of the Spirit of God that propels the Christian to witness for Christ at important junctures of opportunity. You can kind of see how that unfolds around three thoughts. There's the certain power that needs to be there. That's the Spirit. There's a certain purpose it is to witness and a certain period, opportunities as they arise. The power is the Spirit, the purpose is to witness, and the period is when those opportunities arise in the providence of God. And those that exhibit boldness by nature, even as Christians, can often shrink if they're called upon to witness for Christ at a given moment. And yet those that are timid by nature, that know the Spirit of God upon them, can speak for Christ when opportunities arise. It's really a manifestation, you know, of what the Lord talked about in John chapter 15, verse 26. Where He said there concerning the Spirit of God, When the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, He shall testify of me. He shall testify. I will send them forth, and He will testify of me, of Christ. And so boldness is a manifestation of the Spirit's testifying work through the life of the Christian. That as the Spirit has been put in this world to testify of Jesus Christ, one of the ways, one of the key and primary areas of doing this is in through the life of the Christian who is filled with the Spirit of God to witness for the Lord Jesus. Again, you don't have to have certain personality traits. I'm telling you that. And you need to understand it, because if we just cut ourselves off and say, I'm not that kind of person, you're going to miss out on a lifetime of opportunities and blessings. I was saying to the folks on Wednesday night about what happened last Monday, so I'll just tell it again, basically, because I think it applies. On Monday, I was talking with my mother, and one of the things I asked her about was the, the health of her brother, my uncle. Inquiring to see how he's doing. He's in hospital at present and he's not doing very well. And my mom was relaying that, and I was inquiring a little more just to see to what extent he's not well and so on. And I said to her, I said, Mom, someone needs to go and talk with him. Someone needs to share the gospel with him. And the way I told her, said, I said to her and framed it was, Someone needs to just go and sit down and say, David, we need to have this conversation. Because she knows, and I know, we all know in the family, that his natural response is, as soon as you bring it up, away. And just dismiss it, and turn away, and not want to hear it. But to come and sit down and say, look, we have to have this conversation. Well, anyway, we discussed that, and I was pressing, someone needs to go, you need to go. My sister needs to go. Someone needs to go and talk to him before he gets worse with regard to his health. Well, she didn't really say very much. And then I got a text the next day from her. She was reading her... uh, My my stepfather reads the morning and evening. My mom always reads Checkbook Spurgeon's checkbook. But my stepfather always reads morning and evening. And he reads it to her. And uh, for the evening, I think on Tuesday it was... For those of you who read it, you will know that text from John chapter 1 where Andrew first findeth his brother, Simon. <laughs> he finds his brother, Simon. Of course, we know, and Spurgeon begins to apply the need to bring the gospel to her family. And right there, he finds his brother. <laughs> and so my mom was reading that and she was like, okay, and she, immediately she responded to it. She got on a train the next day, went down to the hospital, sat with him, talked with him, and brought the gospel to him. Now my mom is not an extroverted, bold character. Not at all. Very introverted, very quiet. But that, that is boldness. Incarnate. That's what it is. It's what it is in the life of a believer. When when the Lord presses, when the Lord gives those opportunities, or you sense the Lord is telling you, this is what I need you to do, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. It's your son, and then Spurgeon. Well, <laughs> away you go. Do what the Lord says. I'm thankful. I am so thankful for an example of a parent that is sensitive to the Spirit of God. I will obey. What a trait! Thank the Lord. You don't have to be some kind of personality. Boldness is a work of the Spirit of God that propels the Christian to witness for Christ at important junctures of opportunity. And Paul begins in verse 1 saying, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. He exercises their memory to recall the events of their coming into Thessalonica. He uses the word entrance. He's already used that back in chapter 1 verse 9 where he says, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had onto you. And of course, here he's talking about the testimony of those in Macedonia and Achaia and every place where their faith to God word had been spread abroad. All the people that were talking about what had happened in Thessalonica because the Thessalonians had gone, shared the gospel with these people and they know how the gospel had come to them. They had went and said, here's, here's how we came to know it and understand it and it brought in the whole history of Paul Getting in, going into that city and bringing the gospel. But it was, it was greatly owned of God. Our entrance in onto you, it was not in vain. It was not empty. It was not void. Not in its purpose nor in its product. God had a purpose in us coming to you and you are the product of our visit. Now, consider carefully. They had to exhibit a sense of boldness to even go to this city. When you take in the context that is brought out in verse 2, that they had, been, they had gone through this experience in Philippi that was not pleasant. Indeed, an experience that for those that are faint of heart, they would probably say, I'm never witnessing again, or I need a break from this, I need a rest. Because they had went into Philippi, and they had been beaten to within an inch of their lives, And they had left that city and they had gone straight to Thessalonica. Went right in there to do the very same thing again. In other words, they they understood that this is an opportunity. We have to just go from here to there. We go from this major city to that major city. And we'll go there and bring the gospel. This This is a day of opportunity. It has to be done now. And they were pressed as spiritual leaders knowing the call of God. They went and they seized the opportunity. When everything naturally would call them to say take a break <laughs> or stop altogether or or change your approach In spite of all that had happened in Philippi there was an opportunity to go to Thessalonica and they went And the urgency of the need to preach the gospel is really why the Spirit makes men bold. The urgency, the urgency that men must know about the gospel is why the Spirit of God brings the attribute, the characteristic of being bold. There's no time to shrink. There has to be this pressing to the work today. Beloved, we need to catch continually a sense of the brevity of life and the unending nature of eternity. I was just reading on Friday. I was just gleaning over the 39th Psalm again and praying over the language where... David says, Make me to know mine end and the measure of my days, what it is. And there are other acknowledgments of the brevity of life there that David is is bringing to and and highlighting there in that psalm. A sense of brevity, knowing that, that there isn't time. There isn't time. We have the moment all the time that appears to promise a future for us is not guaranteed. The idea, and we get brought into this sense that that, that there's time, there's time yet. You don't have any time but the moment. And nor do I. I have zero clue when God is going to appoint my departure out of this life. If I'm going to do anything, it has to be now. If you do anything, it has to be now. There is no future than that sense that is promised or guaranteed. And so if there's a sense of something that is urgent, something we must do, namely that the Christian is called to proclaim the gospel, it has to be done now. It cannot be delayed. Paul had such a sense of that, that while his heart was beating, every day was an opportunity. And so while he couldn't stay in Philippi, let's go straight into another city. As, as, as a man who was a leader and was bold, that was an opportunity and he seized upon it. And that boldness comes out in that kind of manner in which he lived. I think, I think we're missing opportunities through a lack of boldness. I know it in my own life and I'm sure you can assent to the same. You can agree that this is a reality. And Perhaps even with a lack of boldness, we don't even see the opportunities that are before us every day. Now I know people, and we're all like this, we like to build relationships before we preach the Gospel, but I'm going to make a suggestion to you. And this is from my own experience working in secular work. Preach the Gospel while while you're building relationships. Everywhere I worked, every single place, where I worked after my conversion, I I made it my business as early as possible to tell everyone that I was a Christian and to try and talk to them about their souls. I would go to work with that pressing feeling, that sense of need. You know, an amazing thing happens. An amazing thing happens. I look back and see it. and Look, it fades in me. As I'm sure it fades in many. And we need to constantly come back and have it revived and restored. But an amazing thing happens when you get a sense of your responsibility to witness. Like you're not you're not making excuses about it. You have this sense that God is, is coming. If you can imagine, like you don't need him to come physically and, and sound this in your ear like a trumpet, it's in the word. But if that's what it takes, and envisage the Lord says, You witness for me. You witness for me. And have that pressing sense that God has called me to be a witness. And then, when you marry that sense of a call, of a sense of, of, of duty to God, or God's the privilege of telling the world of Christ, when you marry that with the habit of reading the Word and praying with a sense of that responsibility, it's amazing what happens. When you read the Word of God, you will find that as you fear going to speak about Christ and being a witness, the Word of God comes and addresses that particular fear. That fear of speaking for Him. And it builds you up with courage. As you pray, you find your heart strengthened and indeed moved from a place of fear to a place of excitement, desiring just for one opportunity. Just give me half a chance, Lord. And I'll tell that person about the Lord. That... that, that, that's where you, you, you find a zealous Christian. Find a zealous Christian who's taking every opportunity. And if you could just pull back the curtain on their devotional life, you could, if you could see into their mind, they're constantly feeling this sense that they need to witness. And then when they read the Word and they pray, it's, it's pressed upon them. And they're looking and they're longing and they're desiring just to tell that soul about the Lord. If you remove the responsibility, if it doesn't press upon your soul, then you'll read the Word of God and your fear of witnessing doesn't get addressed because it doesn't need to be addressed as far as you're concerned. You've kind of shelled that responsibility as something I do once every six months when someone comes and says to me, look, are you a Christian? Can you tell me more about it? And, and that's how blatant it has to be. I remember reading one of the first little books booklets I read about evangelism and verses that you need to memorize it had all these little quotations at the bottom. And I mean, I'm going back a long, long time, but I always remembered one of them, one of the little things that said about, the Christian is to be, <laughs> and I'm maybe not getting this right in the way it was worded, but this was the essence of it anyway. The Christian is to be like a mosquito. You don't need You don't need to invite a mosquito to come and draw blood, to to bite you, whatever. But and basically, if there's half an opportunity, there's one little surface area of skin, one little chance to get there. It will be there, doing its work. And it was saying the Christians to be like that. Just, just give me, just, just, just a little, just, just, just give me half a, half an opportunity. I'll be in there with the gospel. That was Paul, you know. That was Paul. (laughs) He did not need some big massive open door. His his boldness drove him to seize any opportunity. And While his his heart was beating, while he hadn't been martyred in Philippi, let's go to Thessalonica and bring the gospel. Secondly, bold leaders show resilience. They not only seize opportunities, but they show resilience. Look at verse 2. But even after that, we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as ye know at Philippi. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Again, Paul is drawing our attention to the backdrop of their entrance into this city. And he begins verse 2 with this word, but, showing a contrast. Rather than it being in vain, it was the complete opposite. Our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain, but... Even after that, we had suffered before and were shamefully treated. As you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God. It was not in vain, but we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. They talked here about suffering. That's how they were physically treated, they were flogged. They talked here about being shamefully treated. That's how they were legally treated, unjustly thrown into prison. Go back to Acts 16, you will read all about this. So, Paul and Silas were, were flogged and put in prison. Why? For preaching the gospel. Basically, for preaching the gospel. It does not take boldness to preach the gospel where you know you're accepted. I don't really need to be very bold today. I own it. Most of you are with me. You want me to preach. You want to hear the truth. You're all for me. I don't need to be bold. But when you're standing before resistance, unbelievers... As Paul's case, Jews that had zero interest in hearing it and would attack him, then you need to be bold. In other words, if you're always going to wait to preach the gospel when the person is ready to receive it, then where's the need for boldness? If I wait to tell them about Christ when they're ready to hear it, I don't need to be bold. They're inviting it. They're interested in it. They want to hear it. Boldness is necessary when there is resistance. In fact, I would suggest to you, beloved, that every novel way of communicating the gospel is a product of a lack of boldness. So when the church decided we're going to do drama or mime or whatever as a way, I mean, now they have these whole big massive kind of presentations that must cost tens of thousands of dollars that are intertwined with movie themes and so on and so forth. I mean, what is that but a way to remove the scandal of the cross and take away the offense? Any, any novel way of communicating the gospel is a product of a lack of boldness. It's someone who hasn't got the The Spirit's work of boldness in their heart, and so they're trying to find an easier way to do what God has called them to do. Now, we can couch it in terms of wisdom. We need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We need to to change our approach. We know what that is. That's spiritual cowardice. That's what that is. We are so afraid of upsetting people. And we need God to have mercy upon our souls. Paul and Silas, were, as I said, beaten, flogged to within an inch of their lives. We read in Acts 16.23, when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison. And that's what he's bringing out here. Suffered, shamefully entreated. Suffered many stripes, shamefully entreated, thrown into prison. Without any warrant whatsoever. And yet they get up and they go to Thessalonica with no intention of changing the method. None. No thinking, look, we need to reconsider our approach here. No, that never crossed his mind. Well, if it did, it could quickly cast out. There was no sense of entertaining that we're doing it the wrong way. (laughs) this, This is what it's about. Men don't want to hear the gospel. We're called to preach it. We're going to preach it anyway. We have to be faithful to God. And this takes resilience. Boldness brings resilience. What resilience Paul had. What resilience Silas had. What resilience Timothy was learning to have in the work of God. And when they went there, they were shamefully entreated, as you know it, Philippi, yet they were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God. How was it received? With much contention. <laughs> still contention, still fighting. Still opposition, yet there's no apology for the manner in which they went in. This word contention is very interesting. It is used by the Apostle Paul when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. He says, fight the good fight, that word there. Fight the good fight of faith, the contention of faith. Lay hold an eternal life, for unto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession, before many witnesses. Fight the good fight. So there's Timothy. He's on the journey, the Christian life, Christian ministry. He's engaged in it with all of his heart. And Paul says, fight the good fight. Know that as you bring the gospel and do the work of God, there is contention. And again, just to say, this, this kind of contention is the contention of the world. I'm not talking about contention inside the church. That's, that's not really what we're dealing with. In many cases... In some some cases anyway, it doesn't really require a whole lot of boldness. It is dealing with the work. It's the primary work of bringing the Gospel. That's where the gift of the Spirit is promised. That is where boldness is seen so evidently. When a man is full of the Spirit of God to witness for Christ before an unbelieving world. Paul is telling Timothy, look, that, that, that fighting spirit, you need to have it in this world. And then in 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter, he talks about his own life and testimony. He says in 2 Timothy 4-7, I have fought a good fight. Same word, fight. Contention. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Timothy, fight the good fight. Contention there. I have fought a good fight. I have contended. I have stood before an unbelieving world. I have witnessed to great and small. I have brought the Gospel wherever I have gone and in many cases it's with much contention the world didn't want it but i brought it anyway and the world does not want it today either beloved and that is why we need not only to seize upon opportunities but we need we absolutely need to seek to be resilient to be resilient in this call that we have as believers well, let us not shy away from it. Let us not be timid. That brings us thirdly and finally then to consider that bold leaders stay focused. They stay focused. They not only seize opportunities and show resilience, they stay focused. Again, verse 2. But even after that, we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know it, Philippi. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. He stays focused to speak unto you the Gospel of God. Bold leaders know their purpose. And they stay focused on the priority. Paul knew his priority was to bring the Gospel to the Gentiles. He would come to the Jew first. He would bring them the message. He would reach out into the Gentiles. But he was bringing the Gospel. Preaching Christ and then Those that would be saved, he would feed the flock. And it is, listen to me, it is predominantly in this activity that the Spirit of God gives the characteristic of boldness. Predominantly. It is not boldness to have the ability to tear others down. That's not boldness. The Spirit of God doesn't give you boldness for that. Nor does He give you boldness to have the ability to criticize. That's not boldness. He doesn't give this spiritual characteristic of boldness in order to be rash and offensive. It's not necessarily boldness. But Holy Spirit-empowered boldness is to preach the gospel for the good of souls. We were bold in our God, he says. Look at it. We were bold in our God. In other words, the source of their boldness was God. Which goes back to what I was saying how we defined it. It's the Spirit of God that cultivates this. It's not by an act of our will. It's not by saying, I will be more bold today. It is by getting ourselves immersed in the means of grace and crying out to God to open up heaven and fill us with His Spirit and give to us this that Paul so wonderfully exhibited. Boldness. It is God that makes us bold. And he doesn't make us bold for everything, but for preaching the gospel specifically. He does not give boldness to debate secondary and tertiary doctrinal points or areas of minor distinction. It is boldness, not arrogance. Boldness to bring the gospel to souls. It is for the gospel. And that's why bold leaders stay focused. They stay focused. Because insofar as they focus upon the Gospel and the priority of that, the Spirit will give them the boldness they need. But as soon as they become sidetracked, as soon as they start looking into other avenues, the Spirit doesn't come and give them the characteristic of boldness. It's not needed. You're going to argue over some finer point of eschatology or whatever. You don't need boldness for that. Carry on in the flesh. But to stand before a perishing world that hates Christ... And know the resistance and the opposition requires an infilling, a baptism, an infusion of the Spirit of God so that we can stand boldly without fear. You turn to Acts chapter 4, you'll see this. And I don't have time to deal with everything here, but the book of Acts is a blueprint for us to see how the Spirit of God changes men and makes them bold for the sake of the Gospel, predominantly. It's all about the Gospel going forward. First and foremost. Acts 4. You know, the man's been healed at the gate. Beautiful. Peter and John are brought before the council. And we read in verse 13, these men have been preaching the Gospel. And the Spirit of God gives them something. That was very evident in them in their ministry. Verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. As this man was healed, it opened up an opportunity again to bring the gospel. You read the narrative for yourself. And they have this characteristic of boldness. It's so plainly evident. Go to verse 29. As they come back to their own company. We're told that in verse 23. They're let go. They go to their own company. They report the threat. Don't speak anymore in this name. That's the name of Jesus. When they hear that, they pray. Verse 24. They lift up their voice. And we are told in verse 29 what they pray and now, Lord, behold their threatenings and smash them in pieces. No. And help us with our petition to fight for Christian rights. No. And turn their minds and opinions as politicians so they favor the church. No. It's not what they pray. Grant unto thy servants, that with all boldness they may speak Thy Word. In other words, as the world opposes the church, it is not our priority to get the world to like us, appreciate us, change their mind about us, be on our side as unregenerate men. It is our job to keep on Doing what they don't want us to do. And that takes boldness. So they pray for boldness. Give them boldness. They're going to be witnesses in all the world. They need boldness. In verse 31, when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. <laughs> you see the emphasis? You see the priority? And we can pray for a changing of the government to come and alleviate the pressure on the church today. And that might not be the will of God. And I'm not saying don't pray it. Pray for kings and those that are authority that we may live a quiet and peaceable life. But there's one thing, if God so sees fit in His providence and dealing with us in this generation, one thing we can be guaranteed He will give to us in the midst of an opposing world It is boldness. He will give it if we ask for it. And so whether they're on our side or not, whether there's a transforming influence from top down or not, we can pray, Lord, make us bold. To keep witnessing as they tell us, don't speak anymore in this name. As they try to silence the Christian. As they try to stop Christian churches, Christian places of education and they try to silence their voice and silence Christian politicians and and close in upon them and and bring a fog around them or or keep them out of the limelight in terms of of the media and have a, a blackout over them that would speak for God. They can do all of that. But Lord, give us boldness that we may speak Your Word and the Lord will give it. Look, we are all timid by nature. We are. We're all like water, seeking for the path of least resistance. But I say this to you, if you're called to lead, you cannot afford to not be bold. Indeed, let us just make it very simple. If you're called to evangelize, and I hope you realize that you are to some degree, you cannot afford to not be bold. You need to be bold. As we tie this up, we want to ask this question. How do we cultivate boldness? How? Preacher, you're saying there's this great virtue, this quality that the Spirit gives. You've talked there about praying for it and so on. But I want us to think just for a second about cultivate. How do we cultivate boldness? One of the remarkable realities of being a Christian is what the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.16. He says there that we can come boldly. It's the same root verb there. We can come boldly onto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can come boldly onto the throne of grace. We can come boldly to God. What an immense privilege. One brother was talking about that in the adult Sunday school this morning. This privilege of coming before God and having a sense of it. Our acceptance and the confidence that that brings. Now think about it. If the Christian can come boldly into the presence of the one that can destroy body and soul, then certainly... He may come boldly before those that can merely destroy the body. If we can come right into the presence of God, boldly, without fear, and communicate what's on our hearts, boldly, confidently, freely, if we can do that before the one we ought to fear above all others, then how can it not, arguing from the greater to the lesser, How can it not be understood then that we have the right to go before the world and be bold? If I have an acceptance before God who can destroy body and soul and I need not fear and be bold before Him, then how can I not just go before the world when the best that they can do is take my body, destroy it? The more we sense our acceptance before God, the more bold we will tend to be. And if therefore we spend our time in the Word, knowing what we are in Christ, spending time in prayer, it will have, especially if we're thinking about the calling to to be a witness for Christ, if we're really understanding that responsibility and we fear it, but we're before God and our fears are alleviated there, the Word will come and an amazing work of the Spirit in our hearts, it will dispel the fear. I have a right before God. I have a right before men. I have no need to fear whatsoever. We may say it this way, that since the blood of Christ has opened the way to God, the blood of Christ has opened our way to sinners. The blood of Christ has purchased our right to be bold. To have no fear. The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. I would love if I had time to show you the boldness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't <laughs> even just take the snapshot of his ministry from John 7, 8, and 9. Especially chapter 7 and 8. And just take time and say, I want to see how the Lord Jesus is bold here. Read it for yourself. In spite of the fact that we're going to kill him threatening to end his life the, the boldness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, we need to be bold. (laughs) Every last one of us. It is a characteristic of leadership. If leaders don't have it, everyone suffers. But it's something we all need. There are people in your life I will never reach. There are people that you meet with and it would take some strange working of providence for me to be in their presence. We We have our place here. In this world, to witness for Christ, be bold. And you know, when they come and they say, "I can't believe you believe it," instead of being so defensive, this is just a little tip for you. Instead of being so defensive, be offensive. When they're amazed you believe in God, be amazed that they don't. What? You don't believe in God? Are you crazy? I mean, we have, we have so shied back. And given ground to the enemy in our own witness. May the Spirit of God baptize us with boldness for the glory of Christ. Let us bow together in prayer. As our heads are bowed and eyes closed before the Lord. There are some of you here this morning and you have no boldness whatsoever before God. You have no confidence before God. You know that you're not right before God. You're really doubting about whether or not you're ready to die. The boldness that we've been discussing and dealing with this morning begins in knowing that you have peace through the blood of the cross. That your sins, which are many, are all washed away. That you're reconciled to your Maker through Christ. And therefore, there's no more fear, for perfect love casteth out fear. You can seek the Lord today. And if you need my help, then be pleased to feel free to come and talk to me. I'll be happy to help. But where you are as we pray, you can pray, Lord, take away my fear. Save my soul. Wash away my sins. Take my life. Our Father, we pray, bless Thy Word. We have heard it today. Now we need to see it worked out in all of our lives. Blessed Spirit of God, do not hold back from this congregation. We here on the Haywood Road need thy sweet influences. We need thee to come and breathe upon us. We need a fresh understanding that we all have a tremendous privilege of being witnesses for Christ. And we need that help that only Thou canst give that will help us to take every opportunity. May we we be given grace to cultivate it and be ready to give an answer. And may we go forth weeping and return again rejoicing, bringing our sheaves with us. Be with us as we go home. Keep Thy hand upon us. And bring us back here again this night, anticipating Thy blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.